0: Welcome back to the program. Fifty years ago, Joseph Heller gave us the paradox of Catch-22. It came to mean a set of contradictory ideas and rules that conflicted with themselves. And while Catch-22 remains a cornerstone of American literature, it also just might be a cornerstone of the Obama presidency. Barack Obama came to office on a wave of hope and change. He came to Washington to change it, only to realize that if you want to get stuff done to change Washington, you can't change it. You simply have to work within it in that paradox in that catch-22 though we can perhaps better understand the past six years of the obama presidency chuck todd the host of nbc's beat the press has captured the essence of this dilemma in his examination of the first six years of the obama presidency chuck todd is nbc news political director and the moderator of beat the press he served as nbc News' chief white house correspondent and it is my pleasure to welcome chuck todd here to talk about the stranger Barack Obama in the White House. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff thanks for having
1: me. great to have, it.
0: great to have you here when one looks at the pinnacle that Obama reached as a politician I can't help but thinking of a sports analogy somebody like Yasiel Puig who came to to <laughs> baseball at the top of his abilities, a great hitter, incredible athleticism and yet didn't understand the nuance of the game regardless of how much money he was making and the heights that he had reached.
1: First of all, it warms my heart that you picked a Dodger. i mean, here. I am talking to somebody in, in in Northern California, and and you picked a Dodger. I am a Dodger fan. I grew up a Dodger fan, so uh, I hope that doesn't make you know half the people turn the radio off in, in Northern California. Um, but it's a, that's a fascinating comparison. Yes, I think the nuances to to both running Washington and changing Washington, and and the and the the fights he chose not to pick, and and the fights that now he's picking that. It's so funny. I'm glad you, you frame it in the first six years. It, it, I'm, the Barack Obama I'm watching now, a little more confrontational, a little more confident in sort of his positions, had this attitude been there, I think, in '09 and in '10. Uh, I think it sets a different. I think there's a different dynamic and a different relationship between the president and Congress. And these problems that he has with Congress are not just with Republicans. They, you, we see it now because Republicans are in control. But this was an also inability to manage the Democrats. Uh, and and so that's um, I think in trying to figure out it, it's it's funny. I don't and uh, and I'm, I'm sure you hear this too. I'll hear from plenty of Obama supporters that sit there and say, I, I just don't understand why, why, can't he, why can't he get this better? Why can't he, you know, it, it's not, they don't, they don't believe he's failed. They're just disappointed that he hasn't sort of wrapped his arms around this. And so that was my goal with the book to try to explain what, you know, why didn't this work as well as so many of his supporters thought it would.
0: One of the things you talk about, and I think you quote Joe Biden as talking about, that that it's impossible to really be prepared for the presidency, unless, of course, yeah. you're either vice president or first lady or something like that, but that there really <laughs> is no appropriate preparation. How much of it comes from a lack of management skills, a lack of understanding about, to use Peter Drucker's phrase, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch, that the culture they created early on in terms of management just wasn't going to work for them. And how much comes from Obama personally, who he is, and the temperament that you talk about?
1: Look, I think I think a lot of it stems from him. You know, I think, you know look, there are some there are plenty of people that I talked to that wanted to pin some of these problems on Rahm Emanuel, for instance, and that was the President's first chief of staff, somebody who clearly is a creature of Washington. And in and in some cases, there's no doubt that Rom, Rahm, Rahm's mindset in organizing the Obama presidency in the first year was what mistakes did Bill Clinton make? Who also had a disastrous first year and a half running Washington? He wanted to like let's make sure we don't make any of the mistakes Bill Clinton made, and and I would argue he overlearned the lessons, uh, overlearned the lessons in trying to put together the healthcare bill. You know, so it's they they were like, well, we fought the insurance companies and they tore us down in 1993 and 94. This time we'll cut insider deals with the insurance companies. You know, well, then it gave, gave you sort of this complicated, impossible bill to explain that was much harder to to actually create the change that you wanted to fully create in the system that he wanted to do anyway. So, so there there is certainly something to that. I think incrementally and operationally that that, that Rom was an influence on that front. But the larger issue is, it is him. One of his greatest attributes and why he was totally, uh, uh, I think connected so fast is that he didn't come across as sort of this there was a rational rationality to his observations about american politics that it was almost as if he's like yeah this game is ridiculous sometimes and you know i'm not going to play this game not going to play that game Um, but he also doesn't appreciate the fact that well a lot of there are 535 people in the u.s congress that still Play the game, you know the old ways, and you gotta respect the fact that they need handholding, they need backflaps, they need phone calls, they need engagement. You may think it's silly to have to do those things. You don't understand why, you know, you have to have these sort of show um, showboat uh, public, you know, back and forth uh, and have phony negotiations in public in order to please constituency groups in private. And it's a perfectly rational thing for him if he were a columnist at the New York Times to be uh, beating up and berating. But the fact of the matter is he's working in a system that has worked that way for 50 years. Now, could he have made some big, bold attempts to try to change that system? He could have, and I think he missed an early opportunity. You know, There was a big spending bill. He wanted to get get rid of earmarks. It was a big deal to him, Uh, and yet the Democrats handed him this huge... Um, spending bill that had a whole bunch of earmarks in it, and a bunch of the Chicago guys, his true believers, people with him at the beginning, wanted him to veto it, say, you know, show that you're a new sheriff in town, that you're not going to let any, you know, you're not going to let Congress do this, whether it's run by Republicans or Democrats. But the old Washington hands, the Rahm Emanuel's, Phyllis Shalero was a chief uh, the congressional liaison in the first, uh, first term. They all were creatures of Capitol Hill. They said, oh, no, you don't want to make the Capitol Hill committee chairman mad. You know, you got to go along to get along. Well, it sets a tone, you know, think about it as a parent, you know you, you sort of let it go once and 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 you know unfortunately, Congress is not a mature collectively, Congress is immature. there are very mature and and rational people individually in Congress, but when they act collectively, they act like uh, spoiled children sometimes, and you got to use a heavy hand with them sometimes and he and he had an early opportunity that would have been very popular in the public, left and right and independent, and he missed it and I think it's a i, I think it's it was a bigger miss in hindsight, than I think folks realize.
0: And one of the things that that you see in him is this almost resentment of the public relations aspect, the optics of these situations. You talk about the oil spill, for example, that turned out really well in the end in terms of the way the administration handled it, but he resented that others in the administration were, were fixated on the optics of how it was going to appear.
1: Well, it was. There's a great story, and thanks for setting me up on this one. Where uh, Robert Gibbs, the press secretary at the time, walks into his office and says, "Mr. President, I need you to look angry about this." And he and he says, perfectly rationally. And again, this is where he, I think he's intellectually so appealing to so many people because he thinks this way. And was like, "Well, how much oil is that going to clean up? That seems like a waste of time. Why why do that?" And he says, "Yeah, well, you know, this is." This is the political culture of the moment. People are, want to know that you're angry and that you're going to hold these folks accountable, and it will buy you some time and space to actually do what you have to do to clean it up. So we went out there and did it. He wasn't very good at it, and people could tell. You know, My first interview with the president when I took over Meet the Press was a week after that whole incident. James Foley gets, uh, was beheaded on that video by ISIS. He makes a statement about it while he was vacationing at Martha's Vineyard. After he's done, he goes and in, in golfing and it becomes this little Twitter, social media firestorm and cable TV got all into it. And so I asked him about it. And to me, it was, and this is sort of why I I, enjoy, I always enjoy uh, talking with him because he's there's a refreshing honesty uh, on some of this political stuff that he'll, he'll let you in on. And he said to me, he goes, you know what, I don't get the optics right sometimes. Uh, and I, I sometimes don't. And, you know, that's, he didn't he didn't fully admit that what he did was a mistake, but he gets why it appeared to be a mistake. And he says, you know, and I, I, and this was six year you know, we're, we're in the, the time that's in the sixth year of his presidency. And he and he is saying that it, it's just it's who he is. It is why he was so appealing as the non-establishment anti-Clinton in 07. So that personality he needed in order to win. But it's not served him as well in managing what is a ridiculous social media climate in in the 21st century.
0: And of course, this idea of this balance between intellect on the one hand and temperament on the other is a way that we've been looking at and judging and assessing presidents for a long time.
1: No, it is, and and that's you know, and and it's funny. I think temperamentally, he is is suited in a, for a crisis era as as you would want. You want somebody who has this sort of even keel about him. But and he's and he lacks emotion. You know, he's not an emotional guy. I mean, I I've, the most emotional I've ever seen him was the the Newtown Day. Um, you know, when and was, you know he he teared up in public. The only other time I'd ever seen him cry is the day his grandmother died, uh, and he was two days before being elected president. I think it was, and you know he's got this steady sort of inner inner temp, which I think that's the public always responds to that. I mean, I, if you look at our history. Uh, in electing presidents in the modern era, we usually do pick the one that we think is the most even keel, you know, the, the less, the least emotional, because there is that feeling of who do you want on the, you know, especially back in the 80s, in the to who whose hand do you want on the briefcase type of thing. So he's temperamentally very suited to it. However, there is this culture of outrage on the left and right these days that in some ways the political world has gotten less like that. And I think that that's been a that's that's been a struggle that I believe anybody who is president right now would be struggling with.
0: It is this on demand world that we live in, which that temperament is really not suited for. I mean, there's a direct conflict there. It might
1: not be. And, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm most fascinated with watching this, you know, watching how these new candidates for president in 2016 handle it, because Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton are actually more like Obama. Right. They're actually very they don't. They're not emotional uh, people, Uh, but a Scott Walker, uh, a Rand Paul, you know, Rand Paul loves to troll folks on Twitter sometimes, his fellow presidential candidates. Chris Christie clearly has got this, you know, uh, explosiveness about him sometimes. And it'll be interesting to see how the voters respond, particularly in primaries. I think primary voters in general, they, they, you know, we go from, it's one of my big pet peeves these days is that the, you know, we, we go when we, when the one side wants to criticize the other, you know, Republicans aren't Republicans. They become fascists in 140 characters and Democrats aren't Democrats. They become communists as far as the rights concern. It's like, wait a minute, we fought huge wars around the, in Europe to defeat fascism and communism. <laughs> you know, uh, America together did that. So, you know, let's, let's calm the language down.
0: What it really shows in some ways is a real disconnect between the culture of politics in the country today and, and exactly the kind of things you're talking about and the disconnect of that culture from the reality of public policy and the making of public policy in Washington. And the two have never seemed further apart, it seems. What's
1: well, it's funny you bring it up as a culture. I, I, that's the the biggest change I feel like I've noticed just in my 20s four years now of covering American politics is that um, being red or blue, wearing the red Jersey or the blue Jersey or being a progressive or being a conservative is now something you advertise the way you would advertise your religion. It's a cultural identity, what you just identified. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't always, it wasn't for most Americans. And I still think that's the case with the vast middle that your, your ideology isn't a part of your cultural identity, but we have, it's becoming more and more of that right you, you look at the way MSNBC and Fox if you look at how they in some ways the other stories they cover that aren't about politics but they're trying to identify with the what they believe is their viewers culture uh, cultural attitudes whether it's on entertainment whether it's on you know and and that's what I wonder and and once you I make politics part of a cultural identity I actually think then that's why compromise becomes impossible to find because Who's going to compromise their identity, right? It becomes sort of that it becomes harder to compromise in your head because you believe your 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 political stance is 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 ingrained in part of who you are, and and compromising that is would be just out of the question. You wouldn't compromise your your Catholicism, your your Jewishness, your Islam. You know, you wouldn't feel as if you would ever. It's, so that I think is a is a radical change in American politics over the last twenty years. It's been accelerated, I think. And and the question is, is it social media made it look like it's more a part of politics than it really is? That's what I think it is. I think we're self-absorbed about it in Washington to a point of that it actually isn't where the rest of America is.
0: But it does become part of the campaign dynamic in a way. I mean, I remember in the last campaign, and I think I had a conversation with your colleague Chris Matthews about this, looking at Starbucks America versus Dunkin' Donuts America.
1: No, and I, you know, I did one. I think I did Chick-fil-A versus Starbucks. You could, you could, you can go through these Whole Foods versus um, Walmart sometimes, although, you know, now Whole Foods are moving into extra. you know, I, I think the issue is, you know, when I, look, I grew up in a, I grew up with two parents who's canceled each other's vote. My, both my parents, their parents canceled each other's votes, meaning, you know, today, it seems as if you wouldn't see that. Democrats and Republicans don't live next door to each other. There's this self-sort that's taken place, right? And so if you live in a close-in suburb or an urban America, you think one thing on sort of the, the cultural issues that are political touchstones. You live out in exurban America or rural America. It's another mindset. And, and you know, there there aren't a lot of rural Democrats. There aren't a lot, a lot of urban Republicans. And when you don't have that, then, then really all of a sudden we, you know, to borrow a phrase that, from a person that nobody quotes anymore, John Edwards, it is two Americas. We live in, I mean, and we saw it in 2012, right? You had Mm -hmm. Republican America reelected a house, a Republican House of Representatives. Democratic America reelected a Democratic president of the United States.
0: One of the impacts of all of this is that it really affects public policy. It affects the things that you write about that Obama has had to try and weave his way through. I want to talk a little bit about something that's been written a lot about Obama and, and how true you think it is, this idea of leading from behind. Is that true, do you think, and what does it mean?
1: Well, I think what he means is that this was on this foreign policy, and this came up during the Libya uh, situation, where there is this mindset, um, and in it. And it and there is a, a part of the president's national security team, and the president doesn't disagree with this, that you know when it comes to getting involved in some of these Middle Eastern countries, it can't look like America is the one in front because that creates a divisive atmosphere for the local population and it can be divisive in middle east in other Middle Eastern countries so in a case like Libya, the reason that phrase got the idea was no 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 see this is this is um the Arab League and our European allies, and we're coming in because they asked us to help rather than the other way around where and so the assumption was it would be more tolerated around the world if it were seen as somebody else doing this and not a quote unquote American imperialism. Now, of course, the problem when, with that, where the phrase became famous during Libya is, is that Libya The, the Libya, Libya was a failure, you know, making the decision to topple um, to topple Qaddafi. It was militarily successful, but the vacuum that's created, it's now a failed state. And as we've seen, Here's what we do know. Failed states invite terrorist organizations. Now, the question is, you know, and so so with Libya, we tried to do it without having any security force on the ground. That didn't work. In Iraq, we had all sorts of troops. Well, that didn't work. I mean, you know, that's another problem here. Is that no, you know, you, you want to go the neocon hawkish route? Well, that that hasn't helped uh, stabilize the Middle East. You try to do with this, you know, unified, you know, but but sort of hands-off, Style of leadership with the, the Libya. Well, that didn't work. Then there's Syria, where we're sort of just trying to contain the problem, and and that doesn't feel like it's working. Although there are some that argue that actually, you know, you, you, the terrorists, the, the terrorists are over there; they're not coming over here. But uh, I think this is, I think it's just managing the Middle East has, has been uh, a big struggle, and and obviously the Arab Spring was a big, um, I would say, a big miss, a swing and a miss for this administration. But at the time, I don't know how many of those decisions they would have done differently given the circumstances in the moment.
0: One of the things that's so interesting that relates to all of that we've been talking about is that in the foreign policy area, where you would think that this sense of temperament, this ability to act in many cases without having to deal with the institutions of Washington and Congress, that it would have been the ideal place for Obama to act. And yet, as we look at the record after six years, the economy is doing great. The healthcare seems to be taking hold one way or another. A lot of the domestic initiatives that have been so fraught with all this cultural upheaval we've been talking about, they're mm-hmm. doing all right. And the foreign policy area, arguably the world is a far less stable place than when he came into office. That's
1: right. And the question is, is it far less stable? Would it have been far less stable no matter who was president? Um, is Iraq the, the single disruptive force here that that the Middle East is still sort of Resorting itself out from uh, is this inevitable because of the of social media and there wasn't and 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 strong you know strong men or dictators just can't have the same hold that they have anymore. I mean, I think there's a I think this is one of those. We'll answer this question in fifty years, but as far as the president's ability, I think that you know some of this is is I feel as if the. The the adversaries in this relationship, whether it's whether it's Putin or even an ala sort of a, a frenemy like Netanyahu, right? You know, Israel's a friend, but Netanyahu is a sort of not more like a political adversary for the president. They're just they know how to. They're more effective with their own propaganda, and they they've sort of spun up. Uh, our sort of new media culture in ways that I think if they've almost used some of the domestic media tools against the president and made it, I think that much harder and, and it's and sort of uh, cut into his ability to, to where where foreign policy used to be something you could manage from a you know you could manage sort of under the radar and it's just impossible to manage under the radar anymore.
0: It, it's interesting because a lot of what's happened is that in particularly in foreign policy that optics have become even more important that we look at the way people like Putin and even other governments in the Middle East operate and the difference between what they say publicly and what they say privately is so different that the optics become even more important. Well, I, one thing I've
1: You know, it's sort of it's sort of uh, this is where I apply the Tip O'Neill lesson uh, and probably the greatest lesson I've learned in covering international policy, covering the president, which is, boy, while American politics, I, I joke, is all politics is national now. It doesn't matter. You know, you have like city councils, you know, or races are being decided over Obamacare sometimes and things like that in foreign policy, all politics really is local. What you're describing, that they're sort of, you know, Netanyahu is doing what he's doing. Why is he coming over here for a speech, to take, give a speech on Iran? Is he doing it because he's really concerned about, American, uh, about, about the negotiations, or is it because he's got an election that he's worried about, and the only way his party wins is when there's insecurity in Israel? Um, and so, you know, that's a case where his public stance is all about his local politics. Putin, same thing. He's got a crumbling economy, but he needs to tap into Russian nationalism. So there's no there. He can't. You know, this is where the optics trump what might be a more rational decision because it would ruin his politics at home. And I think that that's been that's a big change. You know, it was I had Jim Baker on the show, former secretary of state, Mm -hmm. you know, about three or four months ago. And he admitted to me off camera, he goes, man, it was a lot easier in the 80s and 90s because you could do a lot of these deals without anybody knowing about it. But even when you do a deal with a Saudi Arabia, you know, people find out about it. And, and the more public this stuff becomes, the harder it is to do
0: some diplomacy. It's interesting, there's, there's so much talk about drones. In many ways, drones are almost the metaphor for all of this. They fly over everything at 30,000 feet. They can see everything. They don't engage too much. And there's yeah. often a lot yeah. of collateral damage.
1: I tell you, you know, I don't want to get down, go down the rabbit hole of drones. I think drones is a Pandora's box. I think this is forget nuclear proliferation. I, I you know, the 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 fact that we have that America has essentially approved of using drones as as part of the um, as a as a uh, as a means of of exercising military power. I think it's something we're going to regret in twenty years, uh, and it is it is it is a policy that i understand why it's appealing to american policymakers particularly post iraq because oh my god this is a way to conduct you know some tough military uh missions without risking american lives and that for, first and foremost that that matters a lot in american public opinion but how are we going to feel when some you know i it should should we be more concerned if Iran acquires a lot of drone technology more so than because they'll actually use the drone technology, nuclear technology. They, I think we think that, you know, that's a, that's an end of civilization type of decision. I think most people believe that, that everybody will uh, act rationally for mankind at some point, the drone stuff, boy, that, that could be something that we just fully regret in 20 years, because we've opened that Pandora's box.
0: Talk a little bit finally about the historical perspective to all of this. In the in the period of time that you wrote the book, things changed. Our views of Obama certainly have shifted, are always shifting, and are still shifting again. Talk about it from from that perspective and, and how you think it might look 10, 20, 30 years from now.
1: Look, I think there's four giant pieces of the president's legacy that will be discussed in any book written about him for the next 100 years. All right. Number one, of course, is he's America's first non-white male president. OK. America's first black president. That in itself, that's and and how that um, it, it, I think the, the among the shifts that it did is it engaged minority America in, Amer- in the American political system in a way that while there have always been a lot of activist groups, African-American activist groups, Hispanic activist groups, there was there's been a lot of skepticism among among you know your average African American voter or your average Hispanic voter who believed the system the system was' ne- was never going to fully reward a black candidate or, or a hispanic candidate that's not the case anymore, and you see just a different we 're getting a whole new generation so you know Obama is going to bring about i think just a, a, uh, a bunch of it is going to diversify the American political uh, landscape in, in for decades to come and, and it's open doors and so that's that's like that's big you know in hindsight the economic the getting out of the economic recession over time is going to continue I think to be a positive legacy for him uh, as people sort of look back and economists look back at, at how just bad it really was we don't sometimes we forget how bad it was uh, health care how it will, will survive is going to be, I think, a a giant piece of his legacy. And then what you brought up with foreign policy. I mean, I think this is going to be, you know, the, the backseat driving of his foreign policy decisions are going to be what I think most of the long-term potential critical books that are written about the Obama
0: presidency will start from there. Chuck Todd, the book is The Stranger, Barack Obama in the White House. Chuck's going to be here in the Bay Area on Tuesday at the Norse Theater in a City Arts and Lecture event. That's Tuesday evening. Chuck, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: I can't wait to go, and we'll we'll cut back on the S. Hill Puig talk. But I will tell you, it's remember, it's an odd number year, so Giants fans, sorry, you're not going to win a World Series in an odd number year.
0: It's the Dodgers' turn. <laughs> Chuck Todd, the book is *The Stranger*. Right. Thanks so much for being with us. You got it. Thank you. Thank you.